Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This is the second part of the Edmund Kemper case, aka the co-ed butcher. Last week we went over Edmund's childhood and also by the time he was 15, how he had murdered his grandparents, and then we also went over his first, second, and third hitchhiking victims. Keep doing whatever you are doing and come hang out with me while I talk true crime. going to jump right in to the second part of this. Last week we ended off part one with the murder of a Koku, the 15-year-old who was hitchhiking to her dance class after missing the bus. So I'm going to just uh, take it from there. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen to part one because there's a lot of vital information in that episode. After Edmund had murdered Aku, he moved back into his mother's home, but this didn't stop him from killing. It only increased his urges. In January, he killed again, and then one month later, he killed again. His cooling off period was getting shorter and shorter. The January murder happened on the 7th, and it is now 1973, so it's switched over, it's it's rolled over to another year. And he picked up an 18-year-old woman named Cindy Shaw. Edmund says later, anyone who put their hand on his car door handle was giving him their life. Well, they sure as shit didn't know that, but that's exactly what happened to Cindy. Cindy, she was hitchhiking. Edmund picked her up. He probably used some of his psychological tricks. Um, She got in, and again, he drove her to a wooded area. And this time, he used a 22 caliber gun, and he shot her. He then went home, put Cindy's body in his closet, and waited until the next morning when his mother left to engage in necrophilia. He then dismembered Cindy's body in his mother's bathtub. He kept the head for irrumation. And if you're still not sure what that word means, I might even be pronouncing it wrong, it means he was having sex with it, with the decapitated head. And and that's putting it lightly. The rest of her body he threw over a cliff and those remains were eventually discovered by police. As for the head, he kept it for a few days. Then he buried it below his mother's window face up. This would later be told by him to be some kind of fucked up salute to his mother. He said he did this because she always wanted people to look up at her, which is just twisted. Edmund, he does weird stuff like this. He just, he, I don't, how he thinks is just so far from how anybody could ever think. He thinks it's poetic and powerful, these gestures that he does. He, he does another odd thing kind of like this when he's on trial. So he, does try to kill himself when he's on trial and he tries to do it with a pen by slicing his wrists, but it doesn't work. And he said he did it with a pen because of the saying, a pen is more powerful than a sword. So he thought he should make a pen a sword, turn a pen into a sword. 
he said the media never picked up on this poetic gesture. <laughs> In February 5th, 1973, only one month later, he picks up another woman, 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe. Police had been urging women not to hitchhike, and if they had to, then make sure to trust the person picking them up or um, make sure that whoever picked them up had a university parking pass on their car because police didn't believe it was anyone from the university committing these murders. Guess who had a university parking pass? Yep, Edmund Kemper had one because his mother worked there. Police were actually driving around and arresting women for hitchhiking to try to deter them from doing it, which it wasn't really working. They were picking up women and... and it wasn't working. They also put more buses on the roads to make public transport even more accessible, but women, they were still hitchhiking. Edmund had Rosalind in his car, so he picks up Rosalind when he spots another woman hitch hitchhiking. So he stops, and 20-year-old Allison Lou, she looks in the car and she sees Rosalind. Now, she doesn't know Rosalind, but she sees this woman in a car, and this kind of makes her trust this situation more than she would if it was just a, a man in the car. So maybe Edmund knew that this would happen and he used this to his advantage to get two victims this day. And Allison does. She does trust this and she gets in the car as well. Unfortunately, this was not a safe ride. We know that. Edmund, he shot Rosalind, then turned the gun onto Allison. She held up her hands to defend herself and the, sh the first shot went right through her hands. And the next shot was fatal. He shot her in the temple. Both women were killed. And this, this next part, it doesn't really fit for me. But apparently, this is what actually happened next. Edmund left them in the car with him. So he, so he didn't move them to the trunk like he had his other victims. As he drove, he positioned them to appear as if they were asleep or, or passed out drunk. Uh, but they were shot, so I'm assuming there would have been a lot of blood. And one of those shots was to the temple, like a headshot. And so when he drove back to the university campus, he had to stop at the security gate. And he told the guard he was giving the girls a ride back because they had too much to drink. And the guard waved him through. He saw the, the university pass on Edmund's car and he was like, okay, yep, go on through. But these are things that I couldn't really get clarified. Why he had to go through the campus to get home, I'm not sure. So was his mother's apartment on the campus? I mean, that could have been. And how did the guard not see blood everywhere or a head wound? Or all he had to do was just look a little bit closer at those women to see that they were dead. He, he used a gun. There would have been blood everywhere. He took Rosalind and Allison's bodies to his home where he lived with his mother at this time still and it's not totally set in stone what happened there as there are sources saying he beheaded them in the trunk of his car outside of his home and other sources say he did that in his home he did dismember and defile the bodies as he did with the others he also removed the bullets before discarding the remains and he discarded the remains the next day and and some of those remains they were found a week later but still there was nothing to tie Edmund to these murders. In the meantime, Edmund, he still continued to drive around and, and pick up hitchhikers. He wasn't planning on killing any of them. He, in one interview, he talks about fighting his urges and picking up hitchhikers just to see if he could control his urges. So he seemed to 
be able to do this for a small amount of times. Uh, remains were being discovered and law enforcement and the public knew there was a killer out there. They knew there was a serial killer targeting female hitchhikers. But nobody knew it was Edmund. So Edmund, he kept picking up hitchhikers. And he said when they would talk about the murders, he said, quote, they didn't know it, but they were getting a free ride. I couldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole, unquote. And by saying this, he means anyone who talked to him, I mean, unknowingly about his own crimes, they were free to live. He couldn't kill someone who got into the car and was like, oh, did you hear about that? guy driving around picking up hitchhikers and murdering women oh I bet he looks like this oh I bet he acts like this oh da 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 if they were saying that to him he couldn't kill them for some reason he just couldn't so Edmund although he never made it onto the police force he still liked to hang around police and he did so at a bar called the jury room and it was across the road from the courthouse they all knew him they called him Big Ed, you know, Big Ed's here. And he would go hang around in the bar with the police and listen to them talk about this unknown murderer picking up hitchhiking women. He would never ask too many questions and he would never bring it up because he knew that would make him look suspicious. But he was always listening and he loved it. I think he called himself a friendly nuisance. He'd say, ah, I think the police think that I'm like a friendly nuisance. Uh, so he knew what police knew and he was never going to get caught because he had all the information they had. He knew exactly how not to get caught and they never even suspected him. They were literally drinking with the serial killer they were looking for. He wasn't done yet. In total, including his grandparents, he murdered 10 people, five hitchhiking women, one hitchhiking 15-year-old girl, his two grandparents, and his last two victims were not hitchhikers. And he committed this murder about two months after his last murder. And this happened on April 20th, 1973. Before I get in to the next murders, I just want to play a small clip from an interview that he did. And this is talking about how he was driving around and picking up hitchhikers just to see if he could control himself. they'll take me to their death. I've got the gun in the car, the same one I've been doing it with. I insisted, as gently as I could, I took them where they needed to go, to their college. That was one week before I murdered my mother. I said, she's got to die, and I've got to die, or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. So, um, listening to that, I'm sure you have gathered who his next victim is. Before he did murder his mother, though, because he does, the so it was before he murdered his mother, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, but then after the last murders that he had committed, police have discovered that Edmund was in possession of a gun, which that went against his rights as he was not supposed to own a gun, probably a condition of his release from from parole or probation or whatever he whatever his conditions were there for when he killed his grandparents when he was 15 police did not suspect him of anything okay they didn't suspect him of anything they were only heard he had this gun and they just wanted to get this gun off of him because he wasn't supposed to have it so they only knew that he had a gun that he shouldn't have 
And all they needed to do was take it off him and then that was going to be that. An officer has put on this task and he goes to Edmund's home in search of him. And he finds him outside in his car. But the officer didn't know it was Edmund. And he asks him because the house was kind of hard to find. It was the the same street number. Like I think it was like 4069. But there was two streets that crossed each other's path and the same number was on like each street and his house was a bit further back it was it was hard to find his address so this police officer couldn't really find the address he sees a man working on his car outside he doesn't know it but it is Edmund and he goes over to Edmund and he asks him if he knows where the address to this home he is looking for and it's Edmund's address but Edmund is like oh um we'll come into my house and we'll ask my mom because he thought he was asking about the address I don't know I think they were having some communication issues here they neither was really sure what was happening so Edmund he asks his mom hey mom do you know who lives in that house and then the cop was like oh no actually I'm looking for uh, and then he's like well and then he starts thinking he's like are you Edmund Kemper and Edmund Kemper's like yes I'm Edmund Kemper and the cop was like oh well actually do you have a gun? Because you're not supposed to. And I'm actually looking for you to take this gun. Edmund later said he had a bunch of guns. He didn't have just one gun he shouldn't have. He had a lot of guns he shouldn't have had. And he didn't know which one the police officer knew about. So he had to casually coerce this information out of the cop without admitting to having a lot more guns. And he he did this. During this moment, uh, the gun police were looking for it was in the trunk of Edmund's car. He also had a loaded 22 under his seat in the same car. And police, they never found it because they never searched the vehicle for more guns after Edmund handed over the 44 Magnum in the trunk that they were looking for. At this time as well, Edmund had possessions from the murdered women in his bedroom. He had like a purse and a backpack with their IDs in it, along with a high-powered rifle with a scope. All of this was in, the, in his closet in his bedroom, and the police officer didn't look. And if he had, he would have found all that evidence. Legally, the police officer probably could have searched his car and home for more guns because he wasn't even supposed to have one. So he hands over one he's not supposed to have, I'm sure, somehow they could have said, okay, we just have to search you to make sure you don't have anything else you shouldn't have. And if that were the case, well, they would have caught him right then and there. But he handed over the gun and the police just left him alone, having no idea this was the co-ed butcher they were searching for. No idea at all. They knew him as Big Ed and they have drinks with him at the bar and he's just the friendly nuisance. That's how they knew him. They had no idea he was capable of this. This visit from police it scared him. He thought they were on to him. And he also suspected his mother was starting to catch on to him as well. I think he thought that she had found some of the evidence in his, his room, but sh she hadn't. But perhaps that's why he did what he did next. He didn't go out looking for hitchhikers. Instead, his next victim was his own mother, a woman he has had a turbulent and confusing relationship with his entire life. During an interview about the murders, this is the only one he cries about when recounting it. That night, his mother, Clarnell, came home drunk, according to Edmund. He claims her drinking had gotten worse and worse over the years, so it was at a all-time worse. She sat on her bed reading a book. When he came in to see her, she said something like, oh, I suppose you're going to want to stay up all night and talk now. And he said, no, good night. And then he just left. And that same night, Edmund took a hammer 
As his mother slept, he waited till she fell asleep. He crept into her room and then he beat her over the head with it. Then to ensure her demise, he slit her throat. Absolutely brutal. It reminds me of the Tyler Hadley case a little bit actually. Because uh, he used a claw hammer in this case and Tyler Hadley also used a claw hammer to kill his parents. And Edmund being Edmund and having his protocol of what he does after murdering, he cut off his mother's head. And this gets very graphic and is very disturbing because with that head, he does what he did with all of his other victims' head. And he had sex with his mother's decapitated head. Again, with this irrumation. Then he placed it on a, a mantle or a shelf in the home and he threw darts at it. He started, he got some darts and he started using his mother's head as a dartboard. Then as that wasn't enough, he wanted to humiliate her more, even though she's dead now. He said he wanted to humiliate her without her, you know, talking back to him or making fun of him or doing whatever. So then he screamed at the decapitated head for a while. He was just walking around the house screaming at his mother's head on the mantle. Then he cut out the tongue and the larynx, which the larynx, that's the part of the throat that the vocal cords are in. So this was very symbolic as well. This seems like him thinking this was the end to all of the hurting him with her words and her arguments and her yelling. And he he ripped that out. He took those pieces and he threw them into the garbage disposal and ground them to shreds. Apparently they were like spurting out of the garbage disposal as he he tried to mash them down there. Then he hid her body in the bedroom and then went to the bar to get a drink. And I wonder if he went to the jury room where all the police were. Think of how brazen that is. He murders someone, he goes to this bar, he drinks with police. He's like almost taunting them. Finally, he had killed the woman he truly hated the most, but also the only woman's death he would ever cry over. It was a complicated, toxic relationship and it was now over, but he wasn't done yet. Before I talk about what he does next, I'm just going to play the clip of him talking about um, murdering his mother. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got, came out, I walked up to her bed, she's laying there reading a paperback, as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. And I looked at her, I said, no, I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her, you know. And I'm so cold, it's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard, I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina, see. Came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. It's one of our arguments. I cut off her head and, I'm, and I humiliated her corpse. I said, there, you know, 
six young women dead because of the way she raises her son and the way her son is raised, the way he grows up. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. God, I, don't, I wish I had. Chilling. Absolutely chilling hearing this man talk. Uh, he gets home from the bar and he now calls his mother's best friend over to their home, saying he wants to invite her over for dinner. And his next victim's name is Sally Hallett. When Sally arrived, Edmund attacked her, strangled her to death, undressed her, and possibly tried to defile her body. There was evidence that necrophilia was attempted. It just said attempted. He then hid her body in a closet. In one source I read, he wanted to tell people the two had went away together on, a, on vacation, and maybe that was per, perhaps to buy him some time, but he must have abandoned that plan pretty quickly. I believe this was his breaking point because he seemed to lose all composure and strategic planning by this point. He didn't really know what he was doing. I think he had just snapped now. He wanted this vacation theory, I guess, but at the same time, he then left a note for police at the home of his mother saying that he killed his mother, but he did it when she was sleeping and she didn't suffer. He even wrote in the fact uh, he was the co-ed butcher, so he confesses in, in this note. He then stole Sally's car and fled in hopes the police would come to the home to find everything, but they never did. Because remember, he's paranoid since police came and got that gun. He thinks they're watching him. So he thinks police are going to be over there any minute to see what he had done. They were not. They had no idea that he, he was doing this. He drove 1,500 kilometers to Colorado. And the entire time, he was eating no-dos, which are like caffeine pills, like stay-awake pills. Um, he wasn't sleeping, so his mind was getting weaker and weaker. He was losing it. He was losing the plot at this point. He seemed to be having delusional thoughts that he was being hunted by police, but in reality, they knew nothing. What is terrifying is that he had multiple guns and a shit ton of ammunition in the car. That's what he packed. So what was he expecting to make of this? Was he just going to go out in a shootout with the police. That's what it kind of sounds like he was planning. It sounds like he had multiple plans kind of running at the same time in his head and he was just going to see which one would play out or I'm not sure. He seemed to be losing all planning here. With everything being anticlimactic, he ended up calling police because he was listening to the radio the whole time waiting to hear, oh, double murder, be on the lookout for. But he never heard anything like that. So he called police on himself. And the, so he calls police. He's like, yeah, hi, police. I murdered my mother and I murdered her best friend. And they're like, oh, who is this? And they're like, Edmund Kemper. And they're like, um, can you call back later? They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. They were like, okay, haha, good joke there, Ed. So he waited a while longer, like a, a few hours or something. And then he called back. And again, this time, Instead of just whoever answered the phone, he actually asked for the police officer who came to his home to take that gun off of him. And that officer jumps on the phone and Ed's like, uh, I killed my mother and I killed her best friend. Go check the house. They're there dead. And that officer was like, okay, whatever. Um, let me go check your mother's house. <laughs> like he, they still didn't believe him. And when they did, it was shocking. As soon as they walked in, they said they could smell death. 
the house reeked of death. And they knew that Edmund was telling the truth. They knew this wasn't a big fucking joke anymore. And wherever Edmund was, he was in Colorado, they had local police go and arrest him. So he was arrested and it went without incident. He went peacefully. He went calmly, just like he had when he murdered his grandparents. When police have him in custody, he tells them everything. He talked nonstop. He was just, it was like he was at confession and it was just pouring out of him. He talked and talked and talked and talked. On May 7th of 1973, he was indicted for eight counts of first degree murder. Not 10 because he had already, he had already done his time for the first two murders he committed when he was 15. So now he's facing eight counts, which are the six hitchhikers, his mother and his mother's best friend. October 23rd, 1973, his trial began and he pleaded not guilty. <laughs> okay, I think we're a bit past this now, Ed. So he pled not guilty um, and he used the insanity plea. So he's like, I'm not guilty because I was insane uh, when I did that and I'm actually insane now. And the court, it, it they did not uphold this plea he was in sound mind when he committed the murders, uh, which must have been hard for juries to wrap their heads around because the crimes were so depraved and volatile. But he was not insane. He was just a monster. It was clear that he was not insane. So November 8th, 1973, he was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to, and I don't, oh, I don't know what the, is going on with the sentencing, but he was sentenced to seven years to life for each murder but and you know I hate this you know I fucking hate this word but they were to be served concurrently which makes no fucking sense I absolutely hate that I will never understand that because if he took one life or if he took eight lives it's all the same in prison time to him I just I do not understand why they do this Edmund asked to be put to death so they're like, you are guilty and you're getting seven years to life. Imagine if that motherfucker only did seven years. <laughs> he is such a danger to women, to, to everybody possibly, but mostly to women to just be released after seven years. Luckily he wasn't, but he was found guilty and he was even asked to be put to death and not just put to death by like lethal injection, but he wanted to be tortured. He thought he should be tortured and put to death. Okay. In the state, they were like, um, we can't really do that. And I'm sure the FBI was like, no way, buddy. We are pumping your mind, your sick, twisted fucking mind for information to catch more criminals like you. Because nobody can think like that unless you are like that. So police, you know, as much as they want to try to get in, into the heads of the criminals they're looking for, they never had this kind of insight before. Um, he has been up for parole and he's been denied many, 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 many times over the years. And his next hearing is actually in 2024. And God help us if he is ever free. Just a terrifying thought. Apparently, he has been a perfect gentleman in prison, which I absolutely expected. And he has even narrated audiobooks, some children's books. That is a chilling career path for him to venture down. And I really hope parents 
know whose voice that is reading their child a bedtime story if I found a fucking audiobook and it was like narrated by Edmund Kemper I'd be like no absolutely not no this should be nowhere around children I just no no just no According to a show called Mindhunter, which in all honesty is a very accurate account of Edmund Kemper's crimes, um, he seemed to help the FBI and the BSU, Behavioral Science Unit, to build profiles on serial killers. And perhaps even giving this personal insight into their twisted minds helped police to catch them by explaining how they work and feel and think. So maybe he was an asset in some ways. While in custody, Edmund was being interviewed by a female. I I believe it was a police officer. And Edmund, he was so calm and caring and charming and being very lovely and polite. And then she said in less than a blink of an eye, he was so enraged and furious, looming over her, just ready to kill. Like he jumped up and was just ready to wrap his hands around her throat and murder her. He, He can never be trusted. This just shows us he can never be trusted. He can... He's terrifying because of this. That is what's so terrifying. Everyone's like, oh, he's a gentle giant. People are even like, oh, I really liked him. Like police officers, people who interview him, like, oh, he's so nice. I really liked him. (laughs) He just fools everybody. He is so dangerous because he can lure anyone into this false sense of security. He can make people like him, even knowing what a brutal sick twisted murderer he is he can still do this Uh, and because he is so big and powerful he can just kill so swiftly and so quickly with only using his hands like he's a killing machine i'm now gonna play uh, a few audio clips gonna end this episode off with playing some audio clips of edmund himself in interviews explaining things like why he chose uh, to kill young women hitchhiking who were mostly university students uh and interactions he had when doing when committing these crimes like when he locked the keys in the car and yeah you're just gonna hear him explain these things I have linked all sources where I got these audio clips from those are in my show notes if you want to hear the interviews in their entirety because and even if you look it up on youtube you'll find some interviews that are like an hour and 20 minutes long yes i was also involved in killing co-eds because my mother was associated with college work college co-eds women and had had a very strong and violently outspoken position on men for much of my upbringing my mother was a, a sick angry hungry and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. And I watched the alcohol increase. I watched her social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain from her life, earlier life, her upbringing, uh, a failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. I hate to distill it down into such uh, into one-word realities like that. There's a lot that leads into that happening, but that is what happened. They represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was important to her, and I was destroying it. My frustration, my inability to communicate socially, sexually. I wasn't impotent, but emotionally I was impotent. I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking with the young lady, 
I need to be able to really communicate. And ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women. And I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out. And I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides. This fantastic passion. Uh, it was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that, psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. It was going to happen. I didn't see it then, but it was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun that got us all. The young girl in the front, uh, Anita, was uh, at one. Uh, at first I did, yeah, but that stopped. Because at first I was hoping I could get off, I could get a vicarious thrill out of seeing those pictures and say, well, this will be satisfying enough. One, two people die, that's it. It doesn't have to go past that. And I'll see why I don't want to do it again. Those pictures lasted about two weeks. And I come back from work two days after I did it. I mean, Tuesday, right? Sunday it happened. Monday I took off, took CTO. Uh, compensatory time off, and I go back to work Tuesday. I come home from work Tuesday, a hard day at work. I'm feeling like I used to feel. I've done some work that day. I've accomplished something. And I'm saying, I can't believe I did this stuff. I must have dreamed it. This must be some kind of weird dream. And I come back to the house. I pick up the corner of the carpet. I pull out these pictures and I, in an envelope, and I say, geez, I don't believe this. Now i got to believe it. That really happened. See, I was that distanced from what I had done just one day later that I couldn't believe, or two physical days later, that I couldn't believe that I'd actually done that. After two weeks, I couldn't handle the reality of those pictures. Now, I've seen, I've read where guys have hung criminals, like in the Old West, and tanned the guy's hide and made a pair of shoes out of it. The doctor did, the city doctor, and took his skull and made an inkwell out of it with gold hinges on it for the pens. This was some notorious criminal, right? I said, gee, that's kind of grisly. And I panicked. I thought, I just locked the car keys in it because I can't find them in my pocket. Oh, my God, I locked them in the trunk. I'm kicking on the trunk lid and yanking on it. Oh, no, I don't believe this. I started to run, and I tripped over the gun that I'd had in my pants that I had totally forgotten was there. I stopped. I said, stop and think. I collected my wits. Check all your pockets. I picked the gun up. I stuck it back in my pants, now remembering I had one. I checked all my pockets, and there's the keys in the back pocket. I never put them in my back pocket. It isn't that impossible in this society. It happens. They didn't give up. Uh, he, bad? she didn't give up. I did. I came in out of the cold. And what I'm saying is there are some people who prefer it in the cold. One victim let me back in the car. I locked myself out. She opened the door for me. My gun was under the seat. What in the hell am I doing telling you that? Am I looking, am I, am I a masochist? Am I looking to be tormented further? I'm trying to show you just how awful this got, how commanding these rages got. I was raging inside. There was just 
incredible energies, positive and negative, uh, depending on a mood that would trigger one or the other. And outside, I looked troubled at times. Other times, I looked moody. Uh, other times, perfectly serene. Not very sane. But again, people weren't even aware of what was happening. My mother worked at the campus, and I had an A sticker on my car, an obvious access day or night to the campus. I was picking up some very lovely young women. You know what we were talking about as we're driving around? Almost as often as not, this guy that's going around doing this stuff. And the second they started talking that, they didn't realize it, but they were getting a free ride. I couldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, I swear. You know, but they'd be telling me what all about this guy, and they're comparing notes and speculating on what he looks like, how he carries himself, why he's doing this stuff, telling me about it. It was getting easier to do. I was getting better at it. I was getting less detectable. I started flaunting that invisibility, severing a human head, two of them, at night in front of my mother's residence with her at home, my neighbors at home upstairs, their picture window open, the curtains open, 11 o'clock at night, the lights are on, all they have to do is walk by, look out, and I've had it. They'd buy me a beer, I'd buy them a beer. Uh, casual relationships, but that was, I was poking around a little bit trying to find some things out. I knew they wouldn't be privy to hot information, but there were some things that were bothering me, like were there any speculations on how they were dying? Like I said, a friendly nuisance. I got in the way, and it was deliberate. Again, friendly nuisances are dismissed. Friendly nuisances are dismissed. Those are the words of Edmund Kemper. So in those, in that montage of interviews I just played, he explains why he targeted female co-eds, um, he, how, he hate, how much he hated his mother. Uh, what I found interesting was he hated his mother, but he seemed to have empathy for her. Uh, and he, he's like, yeah, I hated my mother, but she had a really hard life, but so he can empathize with her, but at the same time, he hates her so much that he murders her and then humiliates her body. So that was, um, that's just disturbing. In those interviews, he explains why he started picking up hitchhikers and how that, escalated uh he talks about his fantastic passion which is a really weird way uh to describe his urges uh he also talked in depth about marianne and anita regarding the pictures he took of them after he had murdered them and how only like two days later how he felt so disconnected from the crime um, and he also talked about how he lost composure during one of the attacks and he thought that he had locked the keys in the, in the trunk of the car, but really they were in his back pocket and he like started to run at one point. Um, he talks about the one victim that he, that he got locked out of the car with and then how that victim let him back in the car. And at that point he was talking about a Koku, the 15 year old girl. Um, then he starts talking about... Uh, how he couldn't kill women who brought up his crimes. Like if he picked up a hitchhiker and she started talking about these missing women or these women's remains that have been discovered and a kind of being like, oh, I wonder who did it. I wonder what he looks like. He couldn't, he just couldn't 
murder them. They would never be one of his victims. And he never really explains why. Maybe he himself doesn't even know why. Uh, And he's just so open with his crimes. Like you can hear him talking openly about dismembering bodies. And he's so casual about it. Like he doesn't have a care in the world. Uh, And the last part that I played that was in that montage, that was him talking about drinking with police in the bar and getting in the way on purpose. Just absolutely chilling interviews. That concludes this week's fucking terrifying case about Edmund Kemper being the co-ed butcher. For pictures of the evil giant, head on over to Hell No on Instagram. I'm on TikTok now at hellno underscore a true crime podcast. That is our Instagram name as well. If you are feeling so inclined, you could please hit that five star button uh, and keep sharing the podcast. It's free and it's a great way to support the podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you.